Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michion Diagnostics. In this series, we will discuss thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Michion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hi, this is Brad Lewis with another in the series of uh, podcasts on coagulation-related issues for Machion Diagnostics Incorporated, this series of podcasts called Blood, Sweat, and Smears. Today, I wanted to talk about thrombotic microangiopathies leading up to, as you might uh, suspect, to the diagnosis of atypical HUS versus TTP, but I wanted to start a bit at the beginning. Now, reasons for going through this are several. One is that we've had a number of calls recently asking about this because it is a confusing area. Another is that although I do have other uh, podcasts and some uh, web, webcasts on this subject. They're all fairly long and uh, a, a bit more than many people seem to want to chew off. So I'm going to try to get this done in about 15 minutes. Let's go back to the beginning. One of the things I used to say to my residents was that if you have somebody who has anemia and thrombocytopenia, that's TTP until proven otherwise. And that's wrong. I'm wrong about 99.99% of the time when I say that. But the point was that when you're dealing with a rare disease, you need to come up with a way of thinking about things often so that you don't miss them. The truth is there are lots of times when you're going to see anemia and thrombocytopenia in the same patient. But each time you do, the question should for momentarily slip through your mind of could this be a thrombotic microangiopathy? And if it is, could it be one of the one of those that requires a, a specific therapy. When you see someone with anemia and thrombocytopenia, what you want to look for is an anemia that's consumptive. Ideally, you would see schistocytes, although they're not always present, especially during the first few days of a, of a TMA. So the absence of schistocytes doesn't guarantee that you don't have a TMA. The presence argues very much for it being a real TMA. And you probably ought to at some point either have someone who knows what they're doing or uh, look in a textbook and get an idea of what a real schistocyte site looks like because there are also cells that masquerade as schistocytes. We're not going to talk about that today. Other evidence that there's a red cell destruction going on includes um, low haptoglobin uh, and a rising LDH and a, a rising retic. Remembering that a reticulocyte count when it's elevated is, is evidence of destruction of red cells um, or at least of red cells being uh, more rapidly replaced than they usually are. But in, in the setting of someone who's acutely ill, particularly with renal failure, they may not be able to mount a retic. And then the reticulocyte equivalent is going to be the falling of the hemoglobin. Those people should show a steady drop in their hemoglobin. At the same time, as you see these manifestations of, of red cell destruction, you also see a thrombocytopenia. And in, with some of the TMAs, it may not be terribly severe, but some degree of, of thrombocytopenia. Um, and then lastly, there should be some evidence of organ damage. Often, this, this, the most obvious sign of this damage is the LDH being elevated, and it typically is two or three times or more above the upper limits of normal. And there may be other signs of organ damage, often uh, uh, some renal abnormalities, proteinuria, abnormal UA, rising creatinine, change in mental status, headaches that don't make sense, other kinds of organ damage. So again, once you have the consumptive microangiopathic anemia and a thrombocytopenia at the same time with an elevated LDH and some organ damage, then you know that you have you have someone who has a thrombotic microangiopathy. Unfortunately, and here is I think where most physicians who confront this find themselves becoming 
uh, stymied for a while is there are a lot of possible etiologies for thrombotic microangiopathies. And we'll get to the, to the few that uh, are of interest to the lab here because they have specific diagnostic tests to some extent. Um, but there are others that need to be diagnosed clinically or with, with other sorts of lab tests. Uh, you can look this up in all kinds of resources. Jeff Lawrence uh, has a nice review on thrombotic microangiopathies and atypical HUS, uh, for example. But there are many places to go. But just a few that I wanted to talk about. Malignant hypertension is a very common cause of, micro, of thrombotic microangiopathy. Looks very much like all the rest. The difference is that it doesn't that it gets better when you control the hypertension so that when you have someone who comes in with malignant hypertension as many people may with TMAs with thrombotic microangiopathies if it does not go away after you've controlled the hypertension that ought to get your attention pregnancy certainly has a number of TMAs associated with it preeclampsia help syndrome uh and also TTP and AHUS. Pregnancy-associated TMAs and oftentimes TTP should resolve when you, when you deliver the, the fetus, deliver the baby. A number of autoimmune disorders can do it. Lupus and scleroderma, renal crisis are notorious. Uh, catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome also can present with a TMA. And a number of other vasculitides can do this. Um, some of the glomerulonephritides can do this. Um, including some of the C3 glomerulonephritides, but also other glomerulonephritides. Um, some infections, you know, rickettsial infections and certainly the bacterial infections, which often will have an associated DIC, but you can see infection-mediated endotheliopathy and, and thrombotic microangiopathy without having DIC. And then obviously DIC itself is can look just like a TMA, except there should be a coagulopathy, uh, certainly as it, as it worsens. Malignancy is one of the causes that I have found the most difficult to deal with oftentimes, particularly gastric cancer. It's, it's typically going to be an adenocarcinoma that causes these TMAs. But gastric cancer is, is particularly bothersome because it can often present with enough burden of disease to cause the TMA without having a lot of obvious signs from the disease itself. Um, and may not even show on a CAT scan since the stomach is often so poorly visualized in that setting. And then uh, these days, a number of drugs can also present with a, a TMA, which may or may not be in the same ballpark as some of the others, but a number of the, of the immunosuppressive agents, the calcineurin inhibitors, ortezomib has been, has been associated, gemcitabine is not rare. A number of others can also be associated, as can uh, non-prescription drugs, uh, methamphetamines, cocaine, for example, and some of the others can be associated. And then lastly, you can see TMAs in the setting of transplants, and that too can be a bit problematic in some settings. So once somebody comes in and they have what looks like a TMA with the anemia and the thrombocytopenia and some of the organ damage, your first job is to go through this list of things that can look like a TMA. And I didn't mention B12 deficiency in my list, but B12 deficiency can masquerade as a TMA. It is not one really, unless it's the very rare congenital cobalamin deficiency that we're not going to talk about today. But just plain old-fashioned severe B12 deficiency can look very much like it, although there should be macrocytosis and often are other, other signs that this is really going to be B12 deficiency. Assuming you've, gone, you've done your due diligence, you've gone through your list, and this does not appear to be any of the other TMAs, you're now down to the, the three severe diagnosable TMAs 
that we need to work at with laboratory testing. On the one end is shigatoxin-induced HUS. This should present with a diarrhea, typically a bloody diarrhea. The toxin uh, assay for this is very reliable. You should also be sending off cultures just to be sure. Uh, remember that now there are at least two of the E. coli-type toxins that are that are out there, and you'll occasionally see this with, with other other organisms. To confuse the picture a little bit, remember that up to a third of people with atypical HUS can present with a bloody diarrhea, now, making it look as though it should be a shigatoxin-associated HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome. So the assay for the toxin becomes critical in this setting. Once you've ruled that out, you're now down to only TTP and atypical HUS. Again, often by the time we get there, we still have a few of the other TMA etiologies that are hanging in the background, and time may be a useful agent in the setting, watching it for a short time. But be careful, because often these patients are deteriorating as you watch, and you may not have a long time to continue to, to ponder the underlying real etiology of this TMA. The next step is to get an Adam TS13 assay. This is hard to go through without uh, having visuals to help me out, but uh, Adam TS13 is a is a protease that's designed to cleave the very large von Willebrand's multimers. Von Willebrand's is that large protein that connects platelets to each other and to the endothelium. When it's absent, you have a bleeding disorder, von Willebrand's disease. When you have extra large multimers of von Willebrand's, it makes people hypercoagulable. We take advantage of this when we give someone DDAVP and get some extra von Willebrand's and some extra, extra large von Willebrand's, and those molecules then make induce a hypercoagulability that compensates for some types of platelet-type bleeding disorders. Taking that one step further, if you have ultra-large multimers of von Willebrand's, the platelets not only clot extra well, they begin to clot spontaneously, and they attach to the endothelium, and they activate the complement cascade and cause other inflammatory damage, and that's the underlying etiology of TTP. What you need to make that diagnosis is an Adam TS13 level that's unmeasurably low. Just in passing, this, there are a couple of wrinkles around this. One is you need to know that that level is low quickly. Sending off an Adam TS13 and having that assay come back in four days or a week is entirely unacceptable. Now, patients can deteriorate very rapidly and you don't know what therapy to give them if they're deteriorating like that unless you know whether you have TTP or not. Get an assay some, in some lab, like Machion, that get, gets you these results back in 24 hours. What about those, those Adam TS13 levels that come back and they're measurable, but still very low? There is some sloppiness in this test and there's some sloppiness in the biology of the, of the patients themselves. So you will occasionally, not often, but occasionally see von Willebrand's, I mean, see Adam TS13 levels as high as perhaps 20% in patients who, if you just repeat it again, you'll find that it's actually unmeasurably low and this patient will behave as though they really have a TTP. When the level is below 10%, it's almost certainly TTP, although occasionally severe sepsis or other causes of TMAs can cause a very low consumptive uh, deficiency in ADAMTS13. But when it's between 10 and 20, it's a bit murky, uh, may bear repeating, may bear clinically thinking about it a little bit harder to see if there's something else we haven't thought through. And occasionally you'll see this 
Now, particularly if it's 10 to 15%, you'll see this in a congenital ADAMTS13 deficiency. This is not common in adults, but can be seen, particularly in pregnant women presenting with TTP. So you want that ADAMTS13 and you want it soon. What if you're somewhere and you can't get the ADAMTS13 as quickly as you'd like? Again, I would say it behooves you to move or, or talk to the people around you. You need to be able to get that assay. There's really nowhere in, in the United States where you can't get a stat ADAMTS13 with just a little bit of effort. Now, but assuming that you can't on this particular day, what can you do? There are a couple of studies out now suggesting that since TTP is platelet aggregation, that is platelet consumption, which then causes damage to the endothelium, you need to have severe thrombocytopenia to get the renal insufficiency. So if someone has a creatinine above, say, 1.7 and platelets simultaneously still above 30,000, the chance that they actually have TTP is very small. In one French study, the relative risk was 29, that they did not have TTP when those, when those were present. So in that setting, you may want to stop your plasma exchange or consider stopping the plasma exchange and beginning therapy for the last possibility. So if you have someone with a TMA, you've ruled out all the other causes of TMA first. You then have come around and if they had diarrhea, checked their sugar toxin assay, they don't have that. You've checked their ADMTS13 and it's 30% or, or, or above. They don't have TTP. You're now left with atypical HUS. What is AHUS? So again, without, a, without visuals to assist me, this gets to be a little bit tricky. But if you think back to the complement cas to your immune system, you have a complement cascade. At the end of the complement cascade, when it's been activated, you create a membrane attack complex. You create a small bundle of straws that you can take and jam through cell membranes to destroy them. This membrane attack complex has a particular affinity for damaging renal endothelial membranes, although in fact it can cause damage to the endothelium in any organ system. Much like the coagulation cascade, the complement cascade is designed to be always on um, so that it's able to ramp up quickly and to prevent it from getting out of control, you have the presence of inhibitors that keep it damped down. Just like protein C, protein S, antithrombin damp down the coagulation cascade in the same way complement factor H, complement factor I, and others damp down the complement cascade. If there is a congenital absence of one of the regulatory proteins or a gain of function mutation in other proteins in that complement cascade, then it can get out of control. One of the questions that often comes up is, well, if this is a congenital disorder, why don't we only see it in kids? And I would make the analogy again back to the coagulation cascade, just like you can see adults presenting with thrombosis because of a protein, a mild, typically or moderate protein S or C deficiency. In the same way, you can see uh, mutations in the regulation, regulatory proteins of the complement cascade, which are mild enough that they didn't show up during childhood. These mutations will typically show up when something triggers the complement cascade, unmasking the inability of this person to control this cascade given that degree of, of, of activation. We see this in pregnancy, which very much activates the complement cascade, and also in malignancies with malignant hypertension, with infections after surgery. There are a number of settings where you can see activation of the complement cascade in this way. If you then have that congenital defect, 
that cascade begins to activate, causes endothelial damage, and that endothelial damage can then keep this cycle going until you get in and break it. And the typical way to today to stop the the complement cascades activation is by treating with a monoclonal antibody against the final step, the terminal activation in the complement cascade C5, and this drug is eculizumab or Solaris. For the purposes of the study, this was the way the diagnosis was made. There was no definitive test. There's often the complaint brought up that AHUS is not really a a reliable diagnosis because we don't have a clean diagnostic test. And that's true. And certainly for purposes of, of research, it may be that we some, some of these patients need to be screened out. On the other hand, for clinical purposes, the way the initial trials with eculizumab, for example, were done was by having patients who met the criteria for TTP, but their ADAMTS13 was not unmeasurable and they were not responding well to plasma exchange. They were then considered candidates for eculizumab with, as you probably already know, was a drug that had uh, excellent results in that subpopulation. So that you're really done at that point. You don't need another definitive diagnostic test. It's simply time to stop the plasma exchange, move over to eculizumab generally at that point in time. Um, What about those cases where you're a bit on the fence? What about mixing plasma exchange and eculizumab? Not a great idea. Plasma exchange is expensive and carries some risk. Every time you do it, it washes out the eculizumab. So you find yourself doing a plasma exchange followed by a dose of the very expensive eculizumab, followed by another plasma exchange, which is again expensive, followed by another dose, and you can see where this goes, not to a good place. In general, if this is not ADAMTS13 deficiency, it's not likely to respond well to plasma exchange. You may note that the LDH goes down, that the platelets go up, that the hemoglobin stabilizes, but in in non-ADAMTS13 deficient patients, the plasma exchange typically will not improve the, the renal function, although it does on occasion. In those cases, you probably want to move over to a more definitive therapy for atypical HUS. And then that brings up the next question of, could you do anything else more definitive? And again, the simple answer is atypical HUS is really a clinical diagnosis. You rule out everything else in the setting of a TMA. You now have atypical HUS. You can do next generation gene sequencing. We can sequence the genes for, for the, we can sequence many of the known genes for atypical HUS. And about 50 or 60% of the time in a patient who clearly has HUS, you will find a a diagnostic genetic abnormality. And thus, you would have a clean, definitive diagnosis. On the other hand, in about 40 or 50%, in a patient who clearly has AHUS, responds like it's AHUS, they will not have a definable genetic abnormality, or they'll have an abnormality that's a variant of unknown significance. Clearly, it's not a commonly seen, uh, known uh, variation in the in these genes, but it's not one that's known to be either pathogenic nor benign, leaving you really no better off than you were before in that setting. So genetic testing may be useful, but it is not necessary to make this diagnosis. Um, and again, it, it, the, the absence of genetic anomalies does not mean that, that the patient does not have atypical HUS. There may be other tests coming down the pike that will at least help us to assess whether someone has alternative pathway complement activation. Um, As these tests become available, 
Uh, we'll try to bring them up at, at Machon and make them available to you. We don't have any yet that are clearly reliable for making this diagnosis, uh, nor for ruling out this diagnosis. One of the things patient or docs sometimes want to do is to get a C3, for example, or a C3 and a C4, since no, knowing that atypical HUS is a disorder of complement dysregulation, you ought to find that the C3 is low and the C4 perhaps normal. That can be seen, and when you see it, that is a, a fairly good, suggest, strongly suggestive finding that this is AHUS, but up to 80% of patients in some series have a normal C3 in the setting of active atypical HUS. Now, so what's the punchline here? If you have someone who comes in with anemia and thrombocytopenia, briefly ask yourself, could this be a TMA? If they have microangiopathic hemolytic anemia causing that anemia, that is they have schistocytes and or they have an elevated LDH and uh, low haptoglobin, perhaps a high retic count, and they have some degree of thrombocytopenia and some degree of uh, end organ damage, then you have a TMA. Step two, do your due diligence. Look for all the other possibilities possible etiologies of atypical HUS. If you don't find one, send off an Adam TS-13. Um, if you can't be sure, you're waiting, for example, to see if the malignant hypertension uh, resolves and then takes with it this, this TMA, you may want to send the Adam TS-13 off sooner uh, so you have the result after the, the rest of your thinking or the rest of your uh, observing this patient finally takes place. If the other TMAs appear not to be the etiology. The patient doesn't have HUS because the shigatoxin was negative. They don't have TTP because the ADAM-TS13 was not unmeasurably low. Given the caveats that we talked about earlier, you then have AHUS. It's time to begin treating the AHUS. Will you always be right? No. There are a few other things that will occasionally fool you, malignancy being high on my personal list of things that have fooled me in this setting. In general, the better part of valor in this setting with patients who are deteriorating, and often they are fairly rapidly, is at least a diagnostic trial of, of, of complement blocking therapy in this setting for a typical HUS. Thank you very much. I'll be back to talk with you fairly soon. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michian Diagnostics your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like discussed, please send an email to blood, sweat, and smears at mechiondiagnostics.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at mechiondx. Be sure to subscribe, share, and join us next time for more coagulation information.